Good morning, church. We hope you are all safe and sound at home, but we're glad you've joined us for worship. I have a passage of scripture here I'd like to share, Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high? Worship with us.
rest in his righteousness alone. So another form of worship is in giving, and this next portion of our service is set aside to specifically give you time to use one of the options within the website um, or however you are comfortable to give, um, to give this chance to give back a little bit of what you've been blessed with. Many have faced all kinds of surprise limitations with finances, waiting on different funds to come in and we just ask that you follow the guidance of the Lord and how you are able to give and if you can't give at this time give with worship give with praise so right now Caitlin Ash is going to give a talent offering and she is going to be playing oceans
everybody doing today? Um, I, I, before I start into this message, I just want to give you a word of warning. If this is your first time joining us for a service, um, join us again next week uh, because this one's going to be a little heavy. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to f- scare anybody or freak anybody out, but it's going to be a little heavy. And, and I, I want you to know uh, that uh, we don't just talk about the heavy stuff. Sometimes we just talk about the joys, right? The joys of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Before I get started, though, I want to thank uh, a number of people. I want to thank my wife, Heather, for making masks. Uh, Alana Watkins, I know you've been making them by the tons and spreading them out to people in this difficult time. I know your daughter, Madison's helped you a little bit, too. And, and, and I want to thank anyone and everyone who's been willing to do what they need to do to reach out to others, to provide for others, whether it be food or masks or whatever that is um, in this difficult time. Thank you. Because in many ways, that's what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in this world. To reach out to those who are in pain or those who are scared um, or those who are losing hope and remind them that there is eternal hope in a Savior. I uh, also wanted to admit something. I have some mask envy. Um, if you saw, if you've been around Chuck Gamble anytime lately, his mask is this beautiful scarlet with a big block silver O on it. Ohio State mask. It's super cool, and I'm jealous. And I just thought I should just confess that now and just get that out front. The other day we had a. Uh, if you missed it, we had unfortunately had a funeral here the other day. Uh, Keith Rustall, our brother, passed away, but, and that was yesterday. And it was a difficult day for all involved, but I, I want to tell you that it was also a beautiful day. It was a day in which his daughter Shelby and his son-in-law Jared both decided they wanted to make a commitment to Jesus Christ, to call him their Lord and Savior, and to be baptized in his name. And, and so we had two people baptized at a funeral yesterday, which is not something you normally see, but... Wow, what a testimony to the life of Keith, well-lived. A man who, who followed the Lord and loved the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved and loves, still watching from above, his family and his friends. And um, I wanted to say thank you for letting us be a part of that. I, with the back to the masks, in the masks, I, you know, I, I try to wear it whenever I'm out in public right now, and I know a lot of us don't. I'm not judging. You do what you believe you need to do right now, uh, but I do. Now, I must tell you, as I just said, I'm not judging. I, I kind of feel judged once in a while when I'm out with a mask on and everybody else around me doesn't have a mask on. And I'm thinking to myself, are they looking at me funny? Do they think I've lost my mind? Do they think I'm crazy? Do they think I'm panicking? And then I'm left telling myself, reminding myself that that doesn't really matter. That those kinds of of snap judgments are often those I lay on myself. Nobody's really judging me about wearing a mask, right? And, And I shouldn't be judging anybody else about whether or not they choose not to. 
Many, many men and women have died over the course of hundreds of years in this country so that we have the right to make those choices. And so I would never be one to tell you you should or shouldn't. But that, that concept, that concept of judgment, and that's why I said you should probably tune in next week because it's going to get a little heavy because we're going to talk about this concept of judgment. And, you know, the idea of forming an opinion or evaluating something to determine whether or not it's valid or appropriate or good. That's, that's what judgment really is. And unfortunately in life, we jump to kind of snap judgments sometimes where we, we act as though uh, our first impression of something or our limited information about something allows us to make a summary judgment about who somebody is and what they've gone through and who they are and what they mean and if they're a good person or a bad person or they're intense or positive, they're intense or ill. And, and so we, we, we make kind of snap judgments on people and on things, sometimes without seeing the full picture. And we can find ourselves in a position where when we're making those snap judgments, where we, we are ignoring God's desire for us, where he would have us judge and what he would have us do and say, and we are supplanting that with our own perspectives. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. When we make those kind of snap judgments at people where we kind of just make it come to a conclusion without really processing and really evaluating we are doing just that we are looking down on others without first considering where God would drive us and what he would have us do and deep down as followers of Jesus Christ we know that we know that and yet we fight that but you know there's and, and so, so given that, given that we know that, it's easy to, to lean into a, the verse we're going to discuss today. We're in a series called The Bible Doesn't Say That, where we're kind of trying to take a look at Scripture and, and, and question, in some ways, whether or not what we currently attribute to the uh, a value we currently attribute to a verse or a meaning we attribute to it, whether or not that's really what it means or what it says. So, understanding that these kinds of, of snap judgments both feel bad and in some ways are bad, it's easy for us to lean into this verse believing that it says something that maybe it doesn't. And that's this, do not judge that you won't be judged. It's Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. And, and it's easy for us to lean into that as kind of a, a blanket statement that says, you do you, I do me, we're all good. And the thing is, it's not. It's not a blanket statement. If we read on in the verse and put it back in context, context it says, do not judge so that you won't be judged, for with the judgment you use, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? And so this, this statement, do not judge lest ye be judges, sorry, King James, I reverted, <laughs> is, is mixed in with this concept really of hypocrisy. It's this idea of understanding that, that 
we sometimes get in our own way that we are really good at identifying what's wrong with everybody else and really bad at identifying when we're falling short of those standards that we might hold somebody else to. And it's a, it's a genuine danger, right? It started with Adam and Eve, right? God, they, they eat of the, the, the knowledge, the tree of knowledge, and Adam immediately blames Eve, and Eve blames a serpent and God, and they all blame God together. It's this, this idea that, that, that we do not have the ability always to see the mistakes in our own role in our mistakes in life and the, and the things that we are and the situations that we are in. Because if we were honest with ourselves, we probably would notice that we are not nearly as perfect as we like to see ourselves that we sometimes do make snap judgments, that we sometimes do evaluate people unfairly, and that we sometimes apply a standard to others that we neglect to apply to ourselves. There's also other reasons why we, we, we try to accept this statement as do not judge as kind of this blanket statement. You know, like I said, it's human nature. We don't like confrontation. We don't like it when... Uh, when others inflict or enforce their perspectives on ours, I want to believe everything I think is right. And that's the few people in here you're supposed to say, yes, Rob, everything you think is right, as they laugh at me and, no, not going to happen. We all do. We all like to think we've all got it together and that it's everyone else who's not quite got it together. It's a a form of of self-defense. So we, we lean into that. And... I also want to, for a moment, take the church to task on this. And that's the big C church, not necessarily Gretna, but the big C church. The big C church has kind of allowed itself to fall into this trap that both Jesus and C.S. Lewis warned us about, this idea of, of using this concept of judgment and, and, and arrogantly applying it to others without first asking whether or not God is ordaining something or God wants something. We have uh, failed to be the people of God in this respect when we try to apply judgments to things that really don't matter (laughs) or are of so little importance in comparison to what it means to come to know the Lord, to be saved with the, in the Lord, and to walk in the Lord. One of the mantras of the Brethren Church is this. It says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, clarity, or charity, all things, charity. And sometimes I think we're really good at kind of trying to lump everything into an essential if it just feels bad or rubs us the wrong way. We could pick obvious things like... Um, the song choices in certain venues where we, some of us like certain types of songs and some of us like others and we, we quickly can get our emotions involved and condemn people who don't like what we like or want what we want. There have been churches that have split over the color of the carpet on the floor. They've made a non-essential, something that is relatively unimportant, into something that causes them to judge, to evaluate, to treat people as though they've sinned against God himself, and that is just not true. 
The church sometimes over the years, over the centuries, has forgotten that it is mercy that is to triumph over justice and triumph over judgment or or making things right. Yes, justice is a thing, and yes, judgment is important. I've, I've just said we're not supposed to not judge. It doesn't really say that. But if Jesus Christ himself didn't value mercy over judgment, we'd all be in a pickle. But he does. And so should we. Sometimes we use this judgment to deflect. The church has used this judgment to deflect its internal struggles onto the world. It starts to attack others around it instead of just asking themselves first, have you taken the plank out of your own eye? Are you walking with God as you need to walk with God? Are you being the hands and feet of God in the world? Are you choosing to make masks or provide food or do those things that need to be done? Are you spreading the gospel? Are you telling others of who your Savior is? And are you living with mercy and with grace and helping the poor and doing justice and walking humbly with your God? The church has been its own worst enemy in that we say those things and yet do not live them out. We condemn people for fighting against what we say or disagreeing with us, but we don't live out what we claim to believe. That's the hypocrisy that, that Jesus warns the Pharisees in the context of that, of that text. He's, he's warning the Pharisees and other people to remember that, to remember that if, if you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk. And yes, it's a journey, it's a process. None of us are perfect. We are always gonna fall short. We are always uh, growing and learning. It is a lifelong journey. I had a discussion with a friend of mine earlier this week and, and he's going through some difficulties and he said, you know, I just wish I was more of a grown-up in Christ than I really am. And I said, you know what? Maturing in Christ is not something you achieve in this lifetime. It's something you work towards, you strive for, you always grow, you always move forward in the things of God. But remember, he's calling you to his level of holiness. And he understands you're probably not all gonna get there in this short little life. It is a process. But as we, we lean into the, the pendulum swing, right? I just talked about how the church has sometimes been overly judgmental and overly arrogant and overly hypocritical. <laughs> well, just hypocritical in general. How do you be overly hypocritical? It's been hypocritical in the way it applies things and applies the teachings of the Lord and living out those desires for, for our lives. So we have a tendency as human beings to kind of pendulum swing and say, you know, let's get away from the concept of judgment, period. Let's get away from it. Let's just say, you know what, do not judge so I won't be judged. I'm just not going to judge anything or anyone about anything. I'm just going to keep, keep my distance and stay alone and, and let you do you. There's a problem with that. The problem is this, is that by avoiding any type of judgment, which is a process of evaluation and discernment, we lose something. We lose our ability to speak truth into each other's lives. And that's a, that's a harsh statement, especially us in our world right now. We, we don't, we're not used to being 
We're not used to being held accountable by one another. We're not used to coming through the door at church and, you know, as followers of Jesus Christ, because it, Paul will get into this text in a different in, in a second, but there's a difference between how we treat each other and how we treat the rest of the world. We have no business judging anybody outside of these walls. And, and again, that word judgment, it means discernment and evaluation. I'm not talking about a snap judgment where you make a bulk or generalized call on somebody's intent or nature or desire That's just not okay. And those are the judgments we need to lean away from. But the reality is, if we are really going to help each other come to know the Lord, that we have to be brave enough to use discernment, to try to seek God's will and evaluate accordingly, and to try to reach out and help others in their difficult times. So I guess you could say we're not trying to cast judgment, we're trying to use judgment. And unfortunately, unless I let you, it's very difficult for you to do that for me. It's very difficult for you to step into my life and offer discernment and offer evaluation and offer a weighing or a judgment of things. How are things going and, and saying, this is, this is, Rob, this is what I see going on in your life. This is disconnected from that. You say this and you live that. That's not okay. And so this concept of, of judgment, I want to I take us to task on it. I want us to, to, to engage the notion that, that we are intended to help one another discern the path that God is calling us to in our lives. That, that, is, that is the goal. It's part of what it means to be the church. And the idea that, that we are meant to be a, a community of people that just shows up either in a building or, or online together in this case and kind of talks about the things of God and sings some worship songs together and goes back to our corners and back to our own lives and back to our own ways of doing things without any kind of counsel, any kind of discussion, any kind of depth or, or, or intentional maturing in Christ is busted. That is not how this is supposed to work. We need each other. And to do that, I'm going to jump into a text that is commonly used, commonly avoided actually, but when used, is used to describe church discipline. And it's, it's 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 8. And I'm going to read it to you first. And on the surface, if we really look at this text, um, we see judgment, judgment, judgment everywhere. <laughs> but let's read together. It says this, if I can get there. That's why I shouldn't multitask. All right. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though, absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him 
there's that word, who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. You do not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. How many of you would love to come to church and have that discussion with somebody? Where you have to come to a brother or sister in Christ and say, um, yeah, you, you're an unrepentant sinner, don't like you, get out of my church. <laughs> you want to have that discussion? Raise your hand if you'd like to have that talk. No? No takers? I don't blame you. I wouldn't want to have that talk either. But I want, to, I want to challenge us here. I want to challenge the notion that this set of verses, this passage, is less about the particular sin of the individual and in some ways less about the individual himself than it is about how the church is handling it. About how the body of Christ is handling this person's difficulty this person's clear failure and this person's hurt and this person's pain. I will tell you up front, it is not a blanket statement that says if somebody is sinning and they are falling short of the glory of God, they need to be kicked out of the church. That is not what it says. I think we could all agree that the circumstances here, right? Sleeping with your mother-in-law, and unrepentant about it. Those are extenuating circumstances. Those just don't happen that often. And so, unless we're going to hold the text hostage to that kind of ex ex enormous situation, we have to be willing to say, okay, what are the bigger focuses and the bigger goals? Where is Paul really trying to lead the body of Christ in this? Because remember, though this letter, because it is a letter, it's somebody else's mail, is written to the people of Corinth, it is also written for us. So what can we glean from this? Well, first, I think we need to understand context. That's one of my big words, right? Context. The, the city of Corinth um, is a crazy place. And when Paul says, even the Gentiles have noticed this, that means it has to be pretty out there. But the church of Corinth, their biggest problem, as we look through the letter, is really a problem of pride. The church itself has a pride problem. We see in chapter 3 where, Paul, where some of the members of the church are arguing over which one really is a better preacher, Paul or Apollos. Which one knows his stuff better, Paul or Apollos. Paul reprimands them in 1 Corinthians 8 and said that knowledge, this knowledge that you're seeking is puffing you up. It's making you arrogant, right? That's consistent with what he said here in this text. It's making you, making you oblivious to your own 
plank in your own eye and into what God is driving you toward because you're so busy trying to look good, you're missing the point. It's a group of people in 1 Corinthians 14 that their worship services have just become utterly crazy. When Paul says you must have an orderly worship service, I don't think we really understand what's going on here. This is a a mob of people all trying to talk over one another, trying to tell each other, trying to show each other which one of us is smarter, which one of us is more capable. They're even arguing over which spiritual gifts, gifts from God, which one matters more than the other. That's the brokenness of this particular church, just as every church has its own problems, issues, and brokenness. The, 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 the folks of Corinth have fallen into this trap that, that looking good is more important than being the people that God has called them to be. So Paul, in this passage, asked them a question. He asked them, why did you ignore this? And remember, he's asking the church, not the person. It says in verse 2 of this passage, it says, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed will be removed from your midst. In some passages, it's, it's, it's phrased, in some translations, it's phrased as a question. It says, shouldn't you have removed this person from your midst, but given the word choice here, this this word for so that, which he will again use later in this text, in this exact text, um, given that context and given that word being used, I, I happen to believe that that is not a outcome statement, but rather a causal statement. It's a statement that 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 why. Knowing this was going on, because remember, it says they know. He knows. He's in another city. It's been reported. Everybody outside the church, everybody knows. Everybody. And you have ignored it. You have let it slide under the radar. You have let it just kind of go and just kind of accepted it and acted as though it's nothing. So that... In order that, as a result, this gentleman has been living this life for all of this time and doing these things he didn't need to do, and now look where we are. Isn't that kind of how we almost always deal with problems we don't want to deal with? When they feel really big, we just want to hope they'll go away. Just ignore them, and maybe it'll go away, or maybe it won't really be a problem, or maybe it won't really come back and bite us. And yet Paul says, you have done, the people of Corinth, the church of Corinth, you have done this. You have ignored this, and now it's festered into this massive, ugly thing that honestly, when it, if it was treated when it needed to be, could have been resolved. Relevant Magazine lists seven sins, because we're talking about a sin here, right? Sins that the church commonly ignores. The first it lists is fear. 
1 John 4 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. How often have we avoided having a conversation with somebody because we're afraid? We're afraid that how they might see us. We're afraid they might how, how they might respond. And yet, we are called to love one another in such a way that that fear is purely secondary. That the importance of me helping you heal is primary. The problem is we kind of wait. We don't, we don't deal with it. And then we wait until it's become such a big issue that it's tearing people apart. We ignore it all out of fear. But God calls us to love one another in such a way that we are honest with each other. We care about each other. We work with each other. We coach each other. We counsel each other. We don't just shove it under the rug and wait till it becomes too big a problem to leave alone. The second one he lists is apathy. Apathy. Sure, we are, it's easy to be sympathetic, right? To feel sorry for someone in the midst of the situation they're in. But apathy means that we don't have enough compassion to take action to help them. The next sin is, is this. He lists flattery. That's what's listed in, this, in the magazine. So, and he quotes Matthew chapter 6, verse 2. It says, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue. There's that hypocrite word again. And in the street, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. I'm going to tell you a little secret about the prophets. The prophets of God in the Old Testament were not well loved. The people of God did not like them. And Jesus tells his people in Matthew chapter 5, if you are persecuted for righteousness sake, that means if you're persecuted for me, remember I was persecuted first. The truth is, none of us like to hear when we're falling short. And when we do, there's kind of a, when we hear that, there's kind of a natural response, right? Our defense mechanisms go up. We would much rather hear people tell us how wonderful we are and how perfect we are. But the fact is, none of us are. I need you, when you see a disconnect in my life, to tell me you see a disconnect in my life. And I need to be that for you too. Doesn't always feel good, but it's true. The next one is, is comfort. The sin of comfort is listed. The contrast here is, is Jesus himself saying in Luke chapter 9, he says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he goes on to say, you must pick up your cross and carry it every day. Just as I did and just as I do. Sometimes we are so concerned with trying to be comfortable or consistent and keeping things in line and easy so we don't have those discussions, so we don't reach out to help one another, so we don't engage. 
that we miss an opportunity to be the people God has called us to be. We are not called to be comfortable. Comfortable's not the deal. How many of you are uncomfortable doing this at home, right? It's all very, very different. I was on a conference call yesterday with a, a member of the Chamber of Commerce and with uh, the County Health Commissioner, Dr. Hodnot, and about 30 pastors. And amongst the discussion came up the notion that chances are returning to normal, returning what we are comfortable with, any time in the near future is probably unlikely. We will probably see bits and pieces of normal, right? Whatever that is. But it will be a very new normal. And we, we have a choice as the body of Christ in this, in this time. We have a choice to say, are we going to value our comfort and say, if I'm not comfortable with it, this new normal, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> if I'm not comfortable with reaching out in a different way, or if I'm not comfortable with engaging others, if I'm not comfortable with living our faith out in a very new environment, I'm just not going to do it. If being comfortable is, is our God, then we are sinning against God's desire for us. Because we are called to live into the tension. We are called to be the light in the darkness, not huddle up and hide in the darkness. We are called to be a city on a hill. We are called to be salt of the earth. We are called to be something that is often makes us uncomfortable. The next sin they list is nationalism. Allegiance to America is not equal to allegiance to God. I'm going to let that lie. And finally, the last one they list is lying. Lying. Specifically, saying I will do something and then not following through. Something we often don't we often don't classify as outward lying. We say, we dropped the ball, we made a mistake, oops, I forgot. Yes, everybody forgets, but should we not all strive to be people that are doers, that our, our yes means yes and our no means no? That might be in scripture too. It's a discussion about helping us understand that we need to be people of integrity and that if we make commitments, it's a commitment because even if it's with another person, that is indicative of our commitment to the Lord himself. And so the problem here in this particular passage, I really believe in the first few verses is this, is that by simply ignoring this man's ongoing sin because of their own sins, because of their desire not to engage, because of their desire not to be disliked, because of their desire to or their fears over how people might accept them or how they might respond to them, they've let him down. You know, when we um, bring new people into membership in this body, we call it a covenant membership. And the goal of a covenant membership is for us to promise each other that we are going to watch out for each other, that we are in this together, knowing we are all gonna go through difficulties 
knowing we are all going to have challenges, knowing that none of us are perfect, and we are committing to one another to support each other financially, to support each other spiritually, to support each other emotionally, to support each other through the good times and the bad. And those who are brought into membership make those commitments, and those who are sitting out in the body return those commitments to them. That is a covenant that we have with one another to be one another, to be together. And the people of Corinth have fallen short of that. And now they've got a member of their body who is hurting, who is broken. And they're not capable right now of helping them get back to where they need to be. So Paul goes on, right? He says, I'm not even there, but I could see this. I know what's going on, and I'm passing this judgment that you clearly are unwilling to pass. But he does so in a a, a rather impressive way. Paul calls this church and says, I'm going to keep eternity in focus when reaching out to this person. He says in verse 5, he says, I have decided to deliver such such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that, there's that phrase again, in order that, so that as so causing his spirit, causing that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It's the same word, it's the same causal relationship. He's calling the church to say, look, and again, we could get zeroed in on this, the idea that he's kicking them out and saying, go to Satan. Yes, that's happening in this particular case. But the lesson here is this, it's less important, we need to be less concerned about how or the exact punishment or the exact action taken or the exact result and ask ourselves, why would that need to be done? And why are we doing that? It's really easy when, when you feel like somebody is, is beyond redemption, which, by the way, is another lie. Ain't nobody beyond redemption Thank you, Lord, because I'd be a hot mess right now. We tend to wash our hands of them. And yet Paul, even in what seems like such a difficult punishment, his focus, his focus is on salvation, right? His focus is on eternity, on them being returned to the Lord, See, we, we, we need to act in these situations not with a goal of punishing, but with a, with a purpose in helping them be saved. The precise action, kicking somebody out here, is far less important than challenging ourselves to say, is every word we're saying, every decision we're making, every judgment we're coming to, or evaluation, every discernment process, are all those things focused on helping them come to know the Lord. It's a matter of position. Because the truth is, if our goal is punishment, or if our goal is to just get them out of our way so we don't have to deal with them anymore, or in the case of Corinth, I really believe, get them out of here so they'll stop making you look bad, then our motivations are busted. Our motivations are broken. The goal here with any kind of judgment, again, scary word, discernment, evaluation, I'm going to keep saying that because I want us to 
to understand discernment is a godly thing, right? First John 4, he says, discern the spirits, test them. The goal here is always to try to ask ourselves first, what, how does God see me? How does God see them? And how can we help them live into that? And that sometimes means, in fact, probably often means that my personal feelings on the matter don't really amount to a hill of beans. If I'm embarrassed or I'm upset or I feel like I've been slighted, that is of far less importance than helping them see God. It is about reconciliation, redemption, and renewal. That is every action that this church is intended to take, that Paul wants them to take, is about the long term. It's about them coming to know the Lord. And again, the fact that he's asking them to be removed from the church in some ways. Honestly, I think it falls back as much on the church as it does on the person. Because they were not the community they needed to be. Finally, Paul expects the church to act with sincerity and truth. He says in verse 8, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, you know what? Set aside all the anger. Set aside your frustrations. If you want to If you want to judge, evaluate, discern in a way that God desires you to, there is no place for that. Because God thought enough of us to die for us, to wash away the malice that existed between us and him. He thought enough of us to say, I love you enough to forget all of this has ever happened And to approach us and say, I I want you to come to know me again. I want you to see the truth that you can be saved in me. Wouldn't church discipline be so much easier and judgment be so much easier if we were just that? If we were loving and we were sincere and we desired to see you made whole in the Lord and we were willing to have those ongoing conversations so that it never turned into something like this. Remember, God writes these things because they happened and probably because he doesn't want them to happen again. (laughs) We are intended to learn something from this. So what's my end statement? My end statement is this. Do not judge, lest you be judged, because you will be measured by the same measure you apply to others. But... Do not, in, in, at the, in the name of refusing to judge, do not abdicate your job and my job as family, as one in Christ. To be there for one another, to help one another discern God's will, and to help one another experience God's love. I think I'm done. Y'all ready? Our worship team is going to...
so thankful, thankful for the salvation that comes through your son, that you are mighty to save us. You know, our, our, our topic today on discerning your will in matters of difficulty and matters of judgment admittedly is hard for us. And I, I pray that we will 
bow before you when doing so. That we will remember that you have called all of us to come back to you and that is your desire that all of us come to know you, to love you and to trust you and to follow you and to call you Lord and Savior. Father God, I pray that we can be the body of Christ to one another where we are there to help one another grow where relationship is more than just a series of, of platitudes or, or just something we do on Sundays, but that we are brave enough to live life together, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, and to help one another shine your light in this world. Lord, please keep us safe this week. Help us to help others to be your hands and feet. Give us opportunities and give us the courage to step into that. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies and your grace and your strength. And thank you so much for your son. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Gretna. See you later.
you will go before And there are dwell in your presence With you forevermore I am yours